Hi, this is Pastor Corey. I hope this podcast will encourage you, strengthen your faith, and most importantly, help you draw closer to Jesus. Thank you for listening. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to read the first 13 verses. The word of God this morning speaks to us saying, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil, no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy it for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord... Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Father, again, we thank you for your word this morning, that your word still speaks today. Throughout all generations, It is relevant and life-changing. And Lord, we pray for the same today, that it will change lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I know I've probably shared this story before, but it was several years ago before I was pastor and I just attended this church. My wife and I, we had went out to a married couples group that we used to have years ago. And we attended that group, and you know how a lot of small groups go. They last more, longer than what they are supposed to last. We got all that good information about how to have a strong marriage and be better husbands and be better wives. We left that group, and we were driving home. Heading towards Kellogg, just past Smelterville, our Tahoe broke down. I like to refer to it as breaking down. We ran out of gas. (laughs) So back then, I I don't remember what year it was. It wasn't like today where we all have cell phones 24-7 on us for the most part. We sat there and we debated what to do, and we debated, and we decided the only thing we could do was get out and start hoofing it home back to Kellogg. It was dark. It was pouring down rain. If you can imagine, uh, there wasn't much for lovely conversation in the time it took us to get from almost Smelterville to our house in Kellogg. And then to add to that, right when we get to our house, as if it was perfectly timed, there's an Idaho State Patrol that pulls up 
and says, are you the birdies? Yes. Well, you have a vehicle on the side of the freeway and you need to move it before it gets towed. No kidding. <laughs> so I think I found someone to go with me because my wife wasn't going to go back out in the rain for the night. We went, got the Tahoe and moved it. My wife was pretty upset at the moment. And, and here's the deal. Here's what's interesting, if you really think about it. She wasn't mad at me because we ran out of gas. See, running out of, of fuel is only the symptom to the real problem. See, she was raised a different way than me, or I just didn't pay attention to the way I was raised. I'm not sure. But she was raised that as soon as you see the sign on your car that says it's just below half a tank, maybe close to a quarter of a tank, but you're pushing it if it gets to a quarter of a tank, that you go fill your car up. I've always thought that's so dumb because you got that much further to drive. Right, but in my, in my wife's mind, and I say because she's, you know, she's one of those people who stress about things, that kind of stuff, like, she's been taught that you be prepared. Like, if it gets even, even somewhere in the middle, you can see that it's time to become better prepared, just in case you run into a construction zone and you have to sit there for a few hours or you're driving somewhere and somebody gets in a wreck and you're stuck in traffic and, and you need that fuel to get you through to the other side while you're waiting or maybe there's a snowstorm or something like that and I think how often does that stuff happen? Not very, like I'll take the chance to just drive a little bit further, right? But the real reason why my wife was mad at me is because I ignored the sign to become prepared so that I would have the fuel to make it through to the end. Now, the context of the scriptures that we just read this morning are that Jesus just got done schooling the religious leaders inside the temple in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 24, they leave the city and they go up on the hill and they're walking away and the disciples are with Jesus and they say, look at the temple, like that place where you just ravished everybody with your words down there. Look how beautiful it is. Like I, I picture them trying to shed some nice light on everything that took place. Look at those buildings. And, and you know, it was rebuilt just years before the days of Jesus. And so there's this beautiful temple and all the buildings and the structure of the system that they're all looking upon. And Jesus tells them, don't worry about that. It's all going to be destroyed. <laughs> Forget us trying to lift the situation up here, right? And they say, when's this going to happen? And so then Jesus in chapter 24 goes into this explanation to his disciples of all the signs that they will see toward the end times before his return. And it's not just one sign. It's not just two signs. It's not just a few signs, it's many signs. And the closer you get to the end, the more signs you should see. And so, 
after explaining all of this in chapter 24, he gets to chapter 25, and he gets to this parable. He tells them all of these signs, and he says, it's like this. In the kingdom of heaven, there were these virgins, right? And so he begins to describe this parable. And then after the parable we're studying today, he goes into another parable and then another parable. And I want to just give you a little heads up that in every single one of these parables that he is describing to those who say they, quote, believe in God, you know, the I believe in God crowd. He's quoting to those who would say that they are his disciples, but however, I want you to, like, some of you might be thinking, well, were they not all his disciples? Did they all not? No. No, I want to just clue you in. Judas was still alive. He was still with the disciples. He was amongst them. So it was to all of them. There, Jesus isn't going to leave anything out. So he's making every single one of them aware of what the real message is in every single parable that follows the sign. And all of those point to the fact that you should be prepared. The Boy Scout motto, be prepared. In the parable of the ten virgins, they're all waiting, right, for this big event to take place. It's a wedding. They don't know when it's exactly going to happen because they did weddings differently than we do nowadays. The groom would just show up one day and the bride would have to be prepared. He'd come with horns blaring, trumpets sounding. There'd be a crowd of people and they'd pick up the bridal party and they would all march down to a single place. And it was a big event. It was a big show. However, in the parable, there was a delay. They don't know when he's coming, but on top of the fact that he is coming, it says that somehow they knew he was delayed. Now, there's a few things that I just want to point out in these scriptures for you this morning. Number one, for us to just ponder for a minute, is that they were all the same. What do you mean by that? They're all the same. Every person that was waiting for Jesus, they were the same. Why is that important? Well, listen. By outward appearances, they all appeared to look alike. They were all ten women. They were all waiting for the groom to arrive. By outward appearances. They were all the same by virtue. They all appeared righteous as virgins. By purpose, all of them, the wise and the foolish, knew what it meant to wait for the bridegroom to come. There wasn't half of them that were off, you know, drinking and feasting as in the days of Noah. That's important to understand. There, there wasn't the foolish ones off living in the ways of the world. No, in this parable, all ten of them, know what it means to wait for the groom. They all appeared the same on the surface. They all appeared righteous as virgins, meaning they probably really did obey what they knew they should obey. That they were all waiting for the return of the bridegroom. And they were all the same by action, meaning they were all sleeping. Now, sleeping isn't necessarily a negative thing, but in the context, they were all the same by their lack of action, meaning 
There was no work on their part. All ten of them more than likely understood the lesson of, of grace. It's not by my efforts, but when he arrives. I want you to just see the picture here that in the context of Jesus speaking to his disciples, again, who was amongst them, Judas. However, there, there are other scriptures that point similarly to the church in general, right? We know the Bible says that the wheat will grow up with the tear. What does that mean? That means that there's a weed and there's something that's of value that you can't tell apart that will grow up together. In other words, Jesus is referencing specifically in this parable, and it's important for us to pay attention to he, who he is speaking to here. He's referencing those that we might, he's not referencing those that we might consider the wicked of the world. So when he's talking about the end of times and the signs that are to come and all of these things, he's not talking to a group of people that we might consider, hey, it's important for you to know this because you're an atheist. It's an important thing for you to know because you're a Muslim, that you're a new ager, that you're a murderer, that you're outwardly perverse in society. No, no, no. He is talking to those who by all appearances are followers of him. They appear to be the bride of Christ, the church. They appear to be righteous by virtue. They are all waiting on Jesus. That says something. They themselves might even be deceived in the fact that they think when Jesus arrives, they're going to be okay. They all understand more than likely what it means to be saved by grace and not by works. He is talking to people like you and I, people sitting in this church. This isn't for people outside. This is for us. He's trying to get across to them. I want you to watch. I want you to pay attention to what's coming. The second point I want to make in this is that none of them knew when the big event will happen. Now, those of you who've been in the church a long time, y'all know this. But for those who maybe haven't been, understand this. They all know something is supposed to happen. Maybe don't fully understand it. But they are aware that something is going to take place, that it's going to be a big event. And it seemed to be delayed, quite a big delay, a long delay, long enough that in the waiting, it says they fell asleep. But then they were suddenly awakened at midnight. Now, many Christians, I know, believe that Jesus will return someday. But the big question is, when? You know, I've always probably been one of those people, if you were to ask me about the end times, I'll say, I don't get caught up in the end times. I get caught up in doing what Jesus wants me to do now, and when he appears, he appears, no matter what we have to go through in life. I just want to be there, be right, be ready when he appears. However, that's kind of not fully correct in the sense that the Bible is clear you should be paying attention to the signs so that you know you are fully prepared. Second Peter, when is Jesus going to come? In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Peter 
who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, would write to the church and say, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, and both of which I, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. He's trying to remind Christians that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, just stop for a second. He's writing to the church to remind them. I want to remind you. I want to remind all you people who call yourselves followers, all those people that say, I believe in God, anybody that would say they are a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of all of these things. But first, like what's the first? Is that not an important step? If he says, but first, I'm going to preach to you, but first. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to admonish you. I'm going to bring the word of God to train you up and strengthen you. But first, so he says, but first, know this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? What are they saying? Oh, all of y'all have said for 2,000 years, Jesus is coming back. And where is he now? And they're going to make fun of it. We don't know when. We know it's a long time. And there's a potential delay, right? When he comes, nobody's, nobody's going to be expecting it, though. In the parables, it says many a time, or in, in this parable and in other places, it says many a times he comes at midnight. What's midnight representative of? The fact that we're not going to be expecting it. In the previous chapter, in chapter 24, Jesus describes it as a thief that comes in the night. Second Peter, in the same chapter, chapter 3, verse 10, says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, The day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. That's Paul writing to, the, to a totally different church. Again, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 50, Jesus gives this parable of the master of that servant and how he'll come on a day when the servant, it's a servant, not just any Joe Blow, but somebody who's considered a servant, that he will come on a day when the servant is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware. Matthew 24, 44, right before that, he says, therefore you also be ready. Everybody say, be ready. Get prepared for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect so nobody knows when and you won't expect it but he's warning us get ready are you prepared and my question is how in the world are you supposed to be ready supposed to be prepared well you will be prepared if you know the season and Jesus makes it very clear throughout his word that you, if you're a true follower, if you're not somebody that just easily dismisses the end times as when it happens, it happens, like I have often said. But if you're paying attention to the signs, it says you will know the season. 
Is there any question in that? Like, you will know the season. The ten virgins didn't exactly know when, but what were they doing? They were getting ready. All five, the, the, the five that were prepared, they, they were prepared because they knew it could happen at any time. They definitely had a, a general idea of when he was coming. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, after describing all of these tribulations that are, that are going to take place, he says to his disciples in the parable of the fig tree, he says this in verse 32, now learn this parable from the fig tree. What's he want you to do? He wants you to learn something. Learn something from this story of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know. Everybody say, you know. You know. Does it not say you're going to know? How are you going to know? You're going to know because the branch became tender and started to put forth leaves. What are you going to know? That the season is coming. You know that summer, he says, is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know, everybody say, I know, know that it, that it is near at the doors. He's like, now, I want you to understand this. Pay attention. You may not know exactly when the big event's going to take place, but when you see all of these things, you will know the season. There's no question, there's no doubt that should be there. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church, but concerning the times and the seasons, like when's he going to return? Well, concerning the times and the seasons that we live in, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Like, like there's no reason for me to explain this. You yourselves know perfectly. That's what he says. You know that the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Like when is a woman going to go into labor? Well, you'll have an idea. Because you should know the season as things grow and change. And the closer you get, the better idea you'll have. Will you be prepared? And they shall not escape. The end of verse 3, verse 4. But you, brethren, listen. You're not in darkness. You don't lack understanding. It's not, not like you don't know. It's not like you haven't been warned. It's not like you haven't been told what's going to come. The things that are going to take place. The hope that is in tomorrow. You're not in the darkness. So when this happens, this day should not overtake you as a thief. Like because you know, right? The idea is that as a follower of Jesus, you may not expect it. But you should not be caught off guard when it happens, you should not be overtaken, overtaken with emotions, overtaken with fear, overtaken with questions and doubts because you have prepared for this event when you saw the season was coming. Now, I get these crazy thoughts sometimes. I don't know if you guys do. Sometimes I'm just driving in my car and these thoughts go through my head. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I've had 
People asking me, I've had someone call me and say, you know, here's what's going on. My work is forcing me to get vaccinated. Pastor, what should I do? I've had other people talk about that. Like right now, the vaccine is the division. It was masked than the vaccine, and who knows what it's going to be next. That's trying to divide people because where we're divided, we will not stand, right? And so, you know, I've had people asking me these questions. And I've had some people refer back because there's Christians that believe that, you know, the vaccine is like microchip or 666 or something like that. I'll state up front this to clarify and then we'll move on with the sermon like if you take the vaccine do the research it's on you I won't judge you if if you don't take the vaccine that's on you and I won't judge you you you're free to make a choice on how you want to take care of your own body all right so but also this I don't believe that this is 666 that I I don't think this is the end you make this choice that you're accidentally going to be choosing the ways of the world and Satan, and you're going to go to hell for it when Jesus returns. I do think that this could be leading up to something, and it could be a foreshadowing of something. And so in that, I want to say this, that as I think about this and the way things are going in the world, that I've thought about this scripture, that we should know the signs, that we should be prepared so that we are not overtaken that you will know when they say peace and safety. That everything that takes place to lead us to the end that will cause us to have to make a decision will be based upon our peace in life. It'll be based upon our safety in life so that you do not get harmed or your family doesn't get harmed. This is the safe thing to do. So everything that leads to the end will be under the guise of peace and safety. There will be all these things. There will be wars, rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes, pestilences, which is an epidemic of disease that is going around and destroying people. There will be lovers of themselves. There will be people whose love grows cold because of the many sins and offenses that are in the world. There will be all these crazy things, and these are all just the beginning of sorrows, and they're leading up to something bigger. And you have all of this stuff that is going on in the world, and all that you really want at that time is going to be some peace. Peace is going to be something that makes sure that you're safe. And so there will be something that is offered to give you relief from all the craziness in the world. And so I do believe that there will come a day, and I don't know when, when there will be people who have to make the choice between their faith and peace. Everybody seems to hate us in the world. They hate the decision. Family and friends, they dislike me. They, they think that I'm the odd person out. Like, should I just do it so that I can have peace in the family? Should I, should I just do it so that my kids have peace so they're not ostracized? I don't want them to have to go through this. Should I do that? All I really want is peace. Like, I'm getting worn down. Is, is, can I not just have peace in life? But do you not understand that with all of the ravaging that's taking place of lives, that this is the safe thing for you? I believe that there's going to be a day when you're going to have to choose between faith and what the world portrays as being safe.
This is the safe thing. Don't you want what's safe for you? Don't you want what's safe for your family? Don't you want what's safe for your kids? Don't you want what's safe for your grandkids? Won't you do this to protect them? And you're going to have to choose between faith and what is considered safe. If you think the decision right now is difficult, it's not going to be any easier when that day comes. In fact, it'll probably be undeniably, unequivocally harder to make that choice. And the question I have as I've thought about what's going on in the world right now is, will you be prepared? Prepared to say no to peace. The fact that you're going to be considered a hater. Your family and your friends will ostracize you. The world will revolt against you and people like you. Will you be prepared to say, not for me in my house? I don't care if it's the safe way. Even if I saw my kids suffer because they can't buy food, they starve to death and die. Will you choose faith? over what is safe. And I've said this many a times, like this is a choice we struggle with right now even thinking about it. But there are people in the world today that have to make this choice. I look at them and I think, wow, there's hope. They're choosing their faith over peace and safety. And when that day comes for me in my house, I want to make sure that I'm prepared to choose my faith over peace and safety. Will you be prepared? I believe that you can be if you are watching for the signs. Jesus in his parable of the fig tree he happens to mention the summer season. I, I don't believe that Jesus wastes any words. There's never a story he tells or a word that comes out of his mouth that is wasted. Every word has purpose. Every word has intent. Every word has power. Jesus wasn't just flippantly using the idea of the fig tree and you pay attention to the leaves growing and saying, now look towards summer, just as well as he could have said, you know, the leaves are dying and we know that fall is coming. Every word means something. And so when he uses the parable of the fig tree and he says, look, you'll know that summer is coming, it's not by accident. I believe that the disciples would have understood a deeper meaning. Let me explain it to you. That for the Jews, there's this time period. 
that before the work of the harvest that would come in the fall, there was considered a time of preparation. Things are growing on their own. There's things that are going out there. That doesn't mean the, fa- the, the farmer just goes to sleep, right? That doesn't mean that the farmer just decides, I don't have work to do. No, there's a time of preparation that's taking place for the harvest that's to come. And so they're preparing so that they know when the harvest hits, they can make it through the big event and get to the end and reap their reward. And so when he's talking about summer, he's talking about the time of preparation. A season of preparing for what's to come. Now, on the Hebrew calendar, there's this month called Elul, which often corresponds with our modern-day calendar with the month of August. It goes from late August into early September, usually. And spiritually speaking, this is a time for the Jews where they would do three things. During the time of preparation, this is the way that they would prepare. They would, number one, reflect. Number two, repent. Number three, seek restoration. Repent or reflect, repent, restore. Reflect, repent, restore. During the season of preparation, they are solely focused on reflecting, repenting, and restoring. Reflecting on their actions and their behaviors over the last year. We should always be growing. And are you in a better place today, spiritually, in relationship with Jesus than you were at the beginning of the year? Over the last year? Or have you digressed? Have you grown, but there's still some areas that you know that you need to work on? When you reflect upon your faith, when you reflect upon the preparation of your faith, meaning your knowing of who Jesus is, have you grown? The second thing that they focus upon after reflection is the idea of repentance. God, I'm sorry. More than just sorry, repentance means I'm making the change. So I'm going to go from reflecting to repenting. Yeah, I'm not doing what I should be doing. My life is not where it should be. I'm not further ahead than where I was last year. Or yes, I've grown, Lord. But man, I still got a long ways to go. And Lord, I I repent for my anger. I repent for my arrogance. I repent for not trusting you fully. And they go through the season of repentance. And then many of them get baptized. But baptism is just simply an outward expression, right, of an inward work. And so there's this idea of a reconnecting that's taken place, this restoring of relationships. And there's a, a time where, like, it's all about restoring relationships with each other, relationships ultimately with God. I'm reflecting and repenting because I want my relationship to be healthy with the Lord. It's a season of preparing for what's to come. And then that leads the Jews to what is called the High Holy Days. Starting with a season called Rosh Hashanah, what we call the Feast of Trumpets, which is what we're celebrating today after church. 
a time that is commonly referred to as the day that uh, the day or hour no man knows. Jesus doesn't say anything by accident. He wasn't speaking to the Gentiles. He was speaking to Jews. He was speaking to people who were raised celebrating the high holy days every year of their life. And there's one specific feast that is known as the day or hour no one knows. Now, why was that? Well, because it was a celebration that took place according to the new moon. And they're very religious, legalistic, right? And so for a Jew to celebrate a feast that God says starts at the, at the beginning of a new, new moon because they followed a, a lunar calendar, or yeah, the new moon, what they would do is they would have somebody up high on a hill and they would be watching. They wouldn't know the exact day. They wouldn't know the exact hour, but they would know about when. They would have a general idea of when. I mean, if you watched the signs, there would have been a full moon that was preceding a new moon. And so they'd have someone on a hill and they'd be watching it. And it'd always be within a two day time period. And they would know the season of when this holiday is going to start. And as soon as that person spotted the new moon, they would blow the trumpets, blow the shofars to announce the beginning of, of a new year, the beginning of a new time, the beginning of a new season. They're going from a time of preparation into a time of regathering. They were going from a time of preparing the heart and restoring relationships into a time that would ultimately end with the big event and a celebration. It was a big thing. And so when Jesus is speaking of these things, he doesn't say one single thing by accident. And it's believed that this will be the season of the coming of the Messiah because it's when the trumpet sounds. I won't go into those scriptures, but most of you know that it's written that when the last trumpet sounds, right? Like it's that season of the sounding of the trumpets because if you follow the seasons, you have the sounding of the trumpets, which is followed by the Day of Atonement. What was the Day of Atonement for the Jews? The Day of Atonement for the Jews was a reconciling with God. It would be considered the wedding day. It's like, it's like this is the time when I am coming back into union with God. So you should be able to see how fitting it would be for Jesus when he's speaking to his disciples to first mention Pay attention to the parable of the fig tree. Know this sign, and that it leads to summer. And then continue to speak of a day or hour that no man knows, and then use the parable of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom, all of this to teach the disciples that when you see the season, you should be prepared. Now, the fourth and final thing that I want to teach you this morning is in the parable of the ten virgins, it's separation by preparation. Separation by preparation. The parable talks about how five were considered wise and five were considered foolish. 
again, I want to remind you that the foolish weren't the evil, wicked doers of the world. They weren't the murderers. They weren't the lustful people. They aren't the people that are out there. These are people that look just like every other virgin. They were righteous and they were waiting. But they are separated. And when they're separated, the foolish come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord. Like they know him enough to know that Jesus is Lord. And so they cry out to him, Lord, Lord, let us in. Like you don't understand. We, we're just like all of the rest. We attended the same events. We did the same right things. We remained virgins. We were virtuous in our relationship. We were waiting upon you, Jesus. We believed in, in the grace. And he says, I do not know you. They're not allowed in. You know, this isn't the first time that we heard this story. Matthew chapter 7, several chapters earlier, Jesus tells his disciples a similar story. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, they may know me by name, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, who does the will of my Father in heaven, that's not just who gets to enter in. They get to enter in because they know the will of the Father. They know his heart. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, man, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and did many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Like, this is a very similar story to the parables. These were all people who would have appeared to look like followers of Jesus. They will have appeared to have known that there is power in his name. They will have appeared to have known that not only is there power in his name, but they would actually operate in the power of his name. And yet, he would say to them, I don't know you. Just like the five virgins weren't allowed in, they're not allowed in. So what is the difference? All ten virgins played the part. They, they did what they knew to do. They did the church things. They did the, quote, Christian things. They knew the lingo. They knew how they were supposed to act. They played the role. But in the end, it wasn't appearances. It wasn't self-righteousness. It wasn't the tools that they'd been gifted with. Every one of them had been given a lamp. It wasn't even the works that they may have done with those tools. The difference was a preparedness on the inside. Half of them had oil in their lanterns. And half of them didn't. The five wise, they were prepared because they saw the signs. And so they were aware of the season so that they could fill their lamps with fuel 
to get through to the end. When the signs of the seasons are talked about, you know what? It often puts a lot of fear inside of Christians' hearts. I've had a lot of people say, I don't want to live in those days. I don't want to see those things happen. They think about all of the bad things that are going to happen. And then, you know, when asked if they're prepared, they wonder if they're prepared for the tribulations to come. However, I want to say this this morning. The question of preparedness has nothing to do with the tribulations. The question of preparedness has everything to do with the fact or the question of if you're prepared for the return of your Savior. The return of the Messiah, King Jesus. Your preparedness for tribulations is determined by your preparedness for intimacy with the bridegroom. I never knew you, says Jesus. Because the knowing that's being talked about there is not just knowing on the surface. I know, I know. Lord, Lord, I know you by name. It's an intimate knowing. Those who did not enter, they knew about Jesus. They knew about his ways. They sat in the same church as each other. They did the same things as everybody else. They did the work of Jesus. On the surface, they would have looked like they knew him. However, they never truly took the time to personally accept and know Jesus in a way that fueled their heart. Preparing our hearts for Jesus should not be taken lightly. Paul tells the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, which I normally use for marriage counseling, but it is the example of Christ in the church. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What was his point in dying for you and I, in dying for us, the gathering of believers, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, he gave us all so that we would become pure, that we would be made clean. Verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. There's a preparing that's supposed to be taking place right here, right now. And we're to take that preparing seriously. He says he's returning for a church that's without spot or wrinkle. He's returning for a church that's holy and without blemish. He's returning for a church who has prepared to look their best. My daughter, Brooke, is getting married in a couple of weeks. So, in the middle of September, we're going to have her wedding. She just wants a casual wedding with mostly family there. And in 17 years of doing weddings, I, I see a trend towards uh, weddings that have lesser and lesser meaning. 
It's just like marriage doesn't mean as much these days. The ceremonies don't mean as much. A lot of times it's more about the fun and the experience than it is the vows that they're taking. Anymore, I say no to some weddings. In my younger years, I was gung-ho pastor. I have an opportunity to evangelize, build a relationship with people. Maybe someday through doing their wedding, I'll see them at church. There is all of this stuff. Nowadays, call it getting old, religious, whatever you want. I don't even care. I'll say no. If there, I do less and less outside of our church family because I see less and less seriousness in the idea of what marriage is really supposed to mean, the big event, that special day, that special moment. Now, don't misunderstand me. I like to have fun as much as anybody else. I poke fun all the time, make fun. I will laugh. I will sometimes be what you might consider irreverent. I say things when I shouldn't say things sometimes at the expense of me liking to have fun. I get in trouble for it. It's not that I'm opposed to having fun, but I think you can have fun at an event like a wedding, but still have reverence, respect for the vows that you're speaking and what that union should mean. What we're preparing for is not a bunch of horrible things that are taking place on this earth someday. We're preparing for the big event. As I was driving here with my wife this morning, I was playing uh, uh, worship music from Maverick City Music, and they have this song called Jubilee. And there's this part where it talks about the people will shout jubilee. And I had this picture go through my head that someday we're going to receive the bridegroom on the horizon. There will be all these things taking place. And for those who have endured and remained faithful, I see Jesus, my Savior, my defender, my healer, my comforter. And he's coming for me. He's coming for his people. And I just had this vision of the whole earth, the Christians all shouting, Jubilee, Jubilee, Jubilee. I know it sounds crazy, but this all went through my head on my way to church this morning. Nothing to do with my sermon, but it, it had everything to do with my sermon. The excitement, the joy of knowing here comes the groom. And yet the seriousness, the reverence of taking the preparation for his coming serious. I absolutely hate shopping. Over the last few weeks, we're trying to find something to wear for the wedding. She just wants a nice, casual wedding. I, I felt that that's harder to shop for than if we just dressed up in tuxedos. I could have went up to the shop, got measured, and ordered my tuxedo and been done with it. But now i got to find something that's casual and yet nice. 
respectful for the moment, not overdone and not underdone. And so I, I had some ideas and we shopped for them and I couldn't find anything. I spent way too much time online. And then I have 50 million tabs open on my computer. And after a week of staring at all the tabs, I just hit X. Not going to happen. So I go shopping again. Look at the same stores at the same clothes with my wife. Now, just nothing strikes me. And then we go to Coeur d'Alene, and I'm looking. All I want now is just like a suit jacket. Not a suit jacket, though, because that'd be too formal. It's got to be more like a sport jacket. Maybe a blazer. I learned something new today. There's three terms. They all mean something different. Sport jacket, blazers, and suit jacket, three different things. They all look the same to me, but they're different. One has patches on the elbow, or at least it used to. Not necessarily today, though. Someone's like, okay, we're over here. This is like time number three, I think. I'm just going to Cord Lane. Been to Spokane twice, and I'm just going to look around Cord Lane. Just go to Kohl's. They have everything. We go to Kohl's. They have nothing. There's like a shortage on clothes in our world right now. We ask her, where do you think we can find some sort of suit jacket? I'm on the pursuit to prepare. The pursuit to prepare for a serious big event that's about to take place. She says, I'm sorry to tell you, you're probably not going to find anything in Cord Lane. You'll have to go to Spokane. Like, I've been to Spokane twice already. Like, Cord Lane's the big city for me. I, I don't even, Spokane's out of my league. So, for a third time, not by my own choice even, it was a surprise for my birthday, a friend of mine, picks me up and says, we're going to, we're, we're all the way in Cord Lane. We don't stop. And I said, where are we going? We're going to Spokane. No, I am not going to Spokane. You're going to Spokane. It's for your birthday. I don't want to go to Spokane for my birthday. So we go to the men's warehouse. That's all they have. Guess what? They don't have. We go to the store next door. Then we go to the Northtown Mall. I hadn't been to Northtown Mall. We look all over these stores in Northtown Mall. I finally am like, that's it. I'm buying this jacket. Do you like it? Nope. <laughs> I'm just buying it. I don't even care at this point. I got a jacket. So then we leave, and we go to, we decide to get off. Uh, I can't remember for sure. Or Yeah, we get off at the Valley Mall. And that's where I'd been twice already. So we go into Nordstrom's Rack. Like, everything's there way too expensive for me. I don't care how much you got to prepare. I'm not going to pay that much to prepare. Uh, like, you can still find stuff reasonable. I find a jacket. It's reasonably priced. I'm like, this is better than the last jacket I bought, so I buy that jacket. I hate shopping. So I just get this jacket. I'll go home with these two jackets. We'll see which one I'm going to wear. And then we have to go down to the mall. We go back into the store that I've already been in twice, and I see a different jacket. And my friend that's with me says, that jacket looks really good on you. So I buy a third jacket. <laughs> my, my point of this is that I did things that weren't comfortable. I did things that I, I don't really care to do sometimes. It's not that I don't want to look nice for my daughter's wedding. But sometimes you got to go through some things that you don't really care to do. 
And then you got to go through them not just once, but twice, but three times, but four times. And, and you're doing all of these things so that I could look prepared, that I could, I could look nice when I'm walking down that aisle with my daughter as the father of the bride, prepared for the big event. And my question for you this morning is, are you prepared? There's a bigger wedding coming that means much more than any little wedding on this earth. And he's asking us to pay attention to the signs so that we'll be fueled up enough that in the waiting, we can still make it to reap the reward on the other side. Let's pray.